Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Stephen Dean, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We'll be discussing his paper, 10 Truths About Tax Havens, Inclusion and the Liberia Problem, which was co-authored with Atiyah Juarez of the University of Nairobi and is forthcoming in the Emory Law Journal. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Stephen, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate you having me. Stephen, I wondered if we could start this conversation with an introduction of what the Liberia problem is, what's the background there, and what motivated you and your co-author to write this paper? That's a great question to start with, Andrew. I think that the background that is important to understand where the article came from is to understand just the way international tax has historically worked. Much of the way the international tax system works was elaborated 100 years ago by the League of Nations. I am not making that up. So it was created in a world where the globe consisted of basically Europe and North America. That was really who designed the international tax system that we have now. And that may have been a reasonable approach a century ago. These days, having that sort of lack of perspective is a little more problematic. Professor Warris has really been a leader in articulating the politics of international taxation and explaining uh, why it matters that different types of jurisdictions may have different interests. I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. And what I've seen in her work, but haven't seen elsewhere in a lot of places, is really the voice of, not of the global South, that's a a little much, but uh, just different voices of different jurisdictions. So she does a great job articulating that. A few other scholars, uh, it's Silly Dagan, who's now at Oxford, I did a great job of explaining what the international tax system might mean for the global South. And there just haven't been a lot of voices really capturing those different perspectives. When I had the opportunity to work with her to try to offer what for many people would be a quite surprising perspective from a a different sort of country on international tax, I, I really leapt at it because nobody's thought about this more than she has. And frankly, nobody understands it better than she does. So For me, the perspective that I don't see reflected in the global tax policy discussion is about tax havens, which is where the substance of the article comes from. I grew up in a tax haven. I grew up in the Bahamas. Uh, That's where uh, my father was from. My mother, quite surprisingly, is from North Dakota. We can talk another time about how those two met. But growing up in a tax haven and then coming to the U.S. and studying and ending up studying tax law is not entirely a coincidence. But I I saw in the discussions of tax havens, especially over the last two decades, a real absence of perspective. What T and I were hoping to do was to give people a very different perspective on a problem that I think many people think they understand. So I'm hoping to challenge a lot of what people think they understand about tax havens by offering a very different perspective. And I know that by working with Atia, we were able to expand a little bit on the question of what is a tax haven and why does it matter into a broader conversation about why different voices matter, why we want to have a global tax policy discussion that has a real true variety of voices 
And I'll just give you an example. So there are, we're at a really uh, pivotal moment in international taxation these days. You may have heard about digital taxes being proposed and fought over. And there are a lot of real, I don't know if it'll be a watershed moment, but it has that feel to it. So you have a lot of books that purport to offer a new global solution to tax policy. And the authors of those books uh, will almost always be a series of white men from the global north. And I think both T and I agree that if you're trying to propose a comprehensive solution to all the ills with the international tax system, and you have just a very narrow slice of humanity articulating it, it's going to get a lot of things wrong. As you offer this different perspective on international tax policy and tax havens, you point throughout the paper to a, quote, culture story as explaining and driving a global Southern strategy when it comes to tax policy. What has been that culture story and what impacts has it had on tax policymaking the last few decades? I think this is maybe the most important point. When you don't have the perspectives of other places, other countries, other people, there's a lack of understanding. So what do you replace information with? You replace it with stories. And that's really been importantly true in the international tax space, where a lack of understanding has really been hamstringing what we can do in terms of remaking the international tax landscape. You really see it in striking terms with the conversation about tax havens. I mentioned that I I grew up in one and I, I understand what they are and what they aren't. And I think maybe the most helpful way to explain the problem of tax havens and the problem of the culture story of tax havens is to think about a problem that we're all really familiar with these days of COVID-19. COVID-19 is a problem not in any one place, but everywhere. And one of the big challenges of uh, dealing with it, the stage we're at right now, uh, when we're recording this podcast, is trying to uh, get enough people vaccinated, right? So we're trying to get enough people vaccinated so that we can, if not reach herd immunity, we can at least uh, lower transmission levels so that we can go back to our normal lives. And you could think about the conversation about tax havens as really framed as though there were an epidemic of uh, tax evasion and tax avoidance. And in a worldwide tax community, it mattered. It doesn't just matter what any one country does. It matters what happens in other countries as well. It just doesn't help if everybody in your uh, jurisdiction is vaccinated, although it's not a bad thing, if uh, scary variants are coming out of other places that lack access to vaccines uh, and so on. So when you're trying to figure out why tax havens remain a problem. You can think about why vaccine skepticism. So this is something I think about a lot these days. So that's, I think, why this way of explaining it occurred to me. You know, why, even though vaccines are widely available, why are some communities not getting vaccinated at rates as high as other communities? So uh, especially as I see it, a lot of, I think this is not an unusual perspective, a lot of black and brown communities are uh, not being vaccinated at rates comparable to predominantly white communities. And there's often a culture story told about why that is true. Why are some communities not embracing vaccines the way others are? And what can be done to fix that problem? And the culture story that often is told about why black and brown jurisdictions uh, in the US resist vaccines 
is because of skepticism about government. There have been no shortage of awful incidents that should make black and brown people in the United States skeptical about uh, interacting with the healthcare system. But of course, the truth is that it's more complicated than that, right? There are systemic issues that prevent black and brown and lower income folks from accessing vaccines, availability of healthcare, paid time off to both get the vaccine and then recover from, from the vaccine once you've got your second dose. There are a lot of practical reasons why you can't solve this problem. And to just bring us back to tax, the problem in global tax policy has been that we have been telling a lot of stories about why we have the problems of enforcement that we do in international taxation. And generally the story that is told about, say, why Africa. So in order to have to meet your basic development goals, the United Nations says you should collect at minimum 20% of your GDP in taxes. And for more than half the countries in Africa, the figure is less than 15%. So that is not a good thing. And the culture story that explains why uh, Africa doesn't collect the taxes it needs to, it usually uh, it goes along the lines of a lack of political will or corruption. And the facts are more complex. There are a lot of reasons why, and we'll talk about some of them later on, why they lack the ability to collect the revenues that the um, UN says they need to collect in order to meet their basic development goals. And without information about those actual problems, we resort to culture stories that are just unhelpful and distracting from uh, the policymaking process. One consequence of this culture story is that global policymakers, as you describe them, really operate with a fixation on punishing what they view as tax havens. What motivates that fixation on punishment and what real world impacts does it have for the international tax system, both for the developed countries that do the punishing and for the developing nations that are punished? In 2000, when the richest countries in the world were deciding what the problem was with international taxation, they couldn't quite figure it out. And what they did was they decided that they were facing an epidemic of what we now call base erosion and profit shifting. And rather than taking a serious look at the systemic failures, the actual systemic problems that prevented states from collecting tax and participating in the international tax community in effective ways, the process that came out of that exercise was a blacklist, right? The Organization for Economic Cooperation Development published a blacklist of states that had decided were the problem, that were not being cooperative, and that needed to be punished in order to be made to cooperate. And incredibly, just thinking about history and what was happening at the time, Liberia was on that list of uncooperative tax havens, but Switzerland wasn't. The problem here is that when you tell a culture story, <laughs> that identifies the problem as a willful, uncooperative behavior from certain jurisdictions, you end up punishing some states and letting others go unpunished. But none of what you do actually addresses the root causes that are, again, to refer back to that example, that are preventing people from getting uh, the vaccines they need in order to uh, bring down transmission rates and allow us all to resume our lives. And the problem with the fixation on punishment that came out of the culture story, that some states were just uncooperative and were not interested in being part of the international tax community, really focused us on a certain set of responses that did not go to really identify what the key problems were, what the goals were. They just decided there was a lawlessness that needed to be addressed and that prevented that conversation about what the real systemic problems were that needed to be addressed. 
In 2000, the OECD creates a blacklist of uncooperative tax jurisdictions. And as you note, Liberia was on the list, which had recently undergone a civil war, but Switzerland was not on the list. I wondered if you could talk more broadly about how white privilege and black and brown suspicion have driven the last few decades of global tax policy, how they were drivers of this desire, this fixation on punishing tax havens. And where are we now in terms of privilege and suspicion driving policy? It's a really interesting story. So in 2000, when the OECD published its blacklist, there was an enormous backlash. And it's a complicated story that I tell in a different paper, although I allude to it in this one. And the reaction from a variety of groups, including the US Congressional Black Caucus to the OECD's blacklist was, I think, describing it as skepticism really understates it a bit. But what the Congressional Black Caucus did was they looked at what was happening. And to them, this was a clearly just a, a misguided effort to ascribe blame to, as you said, Liberia was one of the countries on that list. And they were just in the middle of a, just an incredible series of brutal civil wars. And to have them identified as a serious problem for the national tax regime, it may have been accusing Charles Taylor, then the president, uh, of the only thing he was actually innocent of. <laughs> so it was really quite striking. What happened when the Congressional Black Caucus responded to this, they actually persuaded Treasury Secretary O'Neill and the second George Bush to withdraw from the OECD initiative. And their withdrawal from the OECD initiative really had enormous implications for the OECD's legitimacy. So it was not clear at all when this project in 2000 and 2001 collapsed, when they essentially were called on this mistake they had made, this approach where Liberia is called out, but Switzerland, which we knew all the while, but eventually it became clear it was a much bigger problem, really did bring the possibility that the OECD would no longer be uh, the leader in global tax policy. It was such a profound loss when the US withdrew their support. And ultimately, that did not happen. The OECD retained its place as the de facto world tax organization. But the problem with that episode, and I think what it really captures is how powerful and quite simply distracting those culture stories are. Even though the OECD did not succeed in imposing economic sanctions on these states and the Congressional Black Caucus and the US pulled the plug on that effort, it really did cement a narrative of there not being a systemic problem at all. Everything is working just fine, except for this lawlessness. That ended up surviving this whole uh, debacle in 2000 and 2001, what happened was that rather than taking a global comprehensive look at the systemic problems, what keeps more than half the countries in Africa from meeting those basic sustainable development goals of revenue collection, the narrative of lawlessness, of uncooperative states, often in the global south, really preventing us from having nice things, it remained. And we never got to have that broader conversation about what should the goals of international tax policy be, what are the concerns need to be addressed. And it's remained true that we're still focused on these questions of who is doing something wrong, rather than how we can fix the broader system that we really need to focus on. 
This paper is structured as 10 truths about tax havens. So you go through 10 statements and talk about uh, the truth that they represent. And the listenership of this podcast is predominantly American, not exclusively, but predominantly American. So in the spirit of questioning privilege in the international tax system, I wanted to hone in on your truth number three, that the United States has become what you call a superhaven. What do you mean by that? And how is the US not just a tax haven, but a superhaven? That's another interesting story. And I think the best way to tell it is back in 2000, the same year that the blacklist was published, Ruben Aviona explained why punishing tax havens didn't make any sense. So he basically showed that, again, say that rich countries could uh, reach herd immunity against individual tax evasion, even if the states that we're talking about that they were focused on didn't cooperate. So they just didn't need their cooperation in order to make sure that tax evasion by individuals, not tax avoidance by corporations, would be a problem. And what he noted was that if you are engaging in tax evasion because you want to maximize your returns, actually hiding your money in a tax haven, certainly hiding your money in Liberia or most of the other island states that you think about as tax havens normally, would be a terrible idea. So you would keep all of your pre-tax returns But you wouldn't have any because these are not places where you can earn a reasonable return, risk-adjusted return. You just can't do it. There's nothing there. And saying that the money is hidden there is just, it's not really a lie, but it's also not true. What was actually happening that Aviona explained was that the money was actually just passing through these jurisdictions. And so the money would just pass through the Bahamas, again, where I grew up, on its way to another jurisdiction where it would actually be invested. And Aviona explains, certainly true at the time, that there were only so many jurisdictions where you could actually earn a decent return, and essentially the OECD. right. So within the OECD, you could make sure, and he offered a few simple tricks that the OECD could have done to solve this problem, to make sure that they were able to protect themselves from tax evasion. So he had shown that there was just no need to engage in this kind of exercise of punishing outsiders when it really could be handled internally. By about a decade later in 2009, when the Swiss bank scandal left no doubt that Switzerland was a major player in individual tax evasion, What the U.S. did was create a new set of rules that it called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, known as FATCA, that required banks everywhere, and not just in certain jurisdictions, to provide the U.S. with information about its residents, about its taxpayers. And this is a different way of solving the problem, Evyona explained. But the key to it is that it is a one-way street. So this is the U.S., demanding that foreign banks provide information on U.S. taxpayers, and it prevents other jurisdictions from either being helping disguise foreign investments, but it also makes sure that the U.S. can't suffer from individual tax evasion because it has information from all of these banks around the world about its taxpayers. That's the theory. But the key is that it doesn't, certainly in its pure form, doesn't require the US to reciprocate, right? So it's just a one-way street. We get information from foreign banks, but they don't get any information from us and foreign jurisdictions don't automatically get information from us. We're in the position now of collecting information, but not providing it. And following up on our FATCA, the OECD helped spur a global information exchange network that was intended to build on what FATCA did. But what actually happens to be true, the US 
does not participate in that. So now the U.S. is in the position being just a not only a jurisdiction uh, where you can earn decent returns, but is also a jurisdiction that does not provide the kind of information that most other jurisdictions are uh, providing. We are now in the position of being exactly the kind of place that Switzerland once was. So Switzerland once was a place where you could not only uh, not have information reporting about your activities, but also earn a decent return, right? So you wouldn't have to uh, combine it with another jurisdiction to get the tax evasion result you want. It's a one-stop shop. So now the U.S. is the place, now that Switzerland is subject to both FATCA and participating in the common reporting standard, the OECD's global information reporting regime. So now the U.S. is the only place that can offer would-be tax evaders everything that they need. That's something that probably comes as a bit of a surprise to the listeners. And when I read that, it was a bit of a surprise to me as well. But I guess we will see how that policy develops and whether our friends and neighbors around the world start to point out our status as a tax haven and might seek some changes from us on that. You recently wrote an opinion piece in The Nation, a plea to President Biden to stop perpetuating racist tax policy, which I'll link to in the show notes, that brings some of the ideas of this paper forward for a non-academic audience. What motivated you to write this piece, and has it had any impact? It's interesting. My wife noted after all this had happened that I wrote this in the middle of the night in a moment of, I won't say unease, I'll go uh, a little stronger than that. It was really quite surprising to me, disappointing. I was quite disappointed. And... My wife reminded me that my uh, father, who passed away a few years ago, was up at night, in the middle of the night, quite regularly writing letters. I didn't really mean to be channeling my dad when I was doing this, but I think I was, and it's really a nice thing for me. But the more specific, not the historical context, but the specific motivation for this letter, and it really was quite something I felt very strongly about, which is, I guess, why I wrote this open letter to President Biden. I've been writing about the problem of tax havens, and not just the problem of tax havens as a problem for the global north, but the problem of the cultural story of tax havens, of the fixation on every story on uh, the internet that talks about tax havens uses a picture of a white sand beach. And that's true, even when we're talking about corporate, which we're now focused on more as opposed to individual. And even though when you look at corporate tax evasion, and you look at the big seven Havens, which is what some of President Biden's experts refer to, four of the seven are European. But still, in all the stories in uh, liberal media, you'll see a picture of a white sand beach illustrating the story talking about corporate tax havens, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'd been quite vocal about this. I'd really been trying to explain why this culture story was not just offensive, but actually making global tax policy worse. You know, why this mistake was such a problem. And I was quite disappointed and quite frankly alarmed that when President Biden announced his effort to improve the international tax system, he didn't dwell on a lot of details in that announcement, but he did take a moment to identify two jurisdictions that he identified as tax havens, really one of the only times that any president has ever talked about international tax, and he called out two majority black countries as the problem, even though his own experts were quite clear that the biggest problems for the seven big corporate havens that were in Europe and Switzerland was one of the leading havens, probably the, the most important from their perspective. We could ask questions about whether any of that makes any sense, but if you're taking them for their on their word, Switzerland and the three other European tax havens were important, but were left out of his introduction of this measure. And that to me encapsulated all of what I had been arguing about, trying to argue against, trying to make sure that people were able to set aside these culture stories 
these outdated notions of white sand beaches being at the core of our problem. And I was really quite worried that what this would mean for the future of this initiative. So even if his experts were quite confident, they knew what what the problem was. And even though I disagree with them in some ways, you know, I don't think that tax havens are the problem in the way they do. We still have to at least be consistent about what we're doing. So when President Biden calls out only two, and then Bernie Sanders a few days later issued a statement also calling out just Bermuda and the Caymans, but not mentioning the big four European havens that uh, should have been part of that conversation if it were happening at all. My fear was that the same sort of policy failures that grew out of the 2000 effort and that lingered long past at the FATCA effort in 2009 would be repeated again. So when the experts lose control of the process, which inevitably happens, and politicians take control, they would lose the subtlety that the experts had been holding on to, and they would unfortunately not be able to, the result would be something flawed again. And that was my concern. I didn't quite know what to do. I apparently had genes that make uh, writing letters late at night seem like a good idea. So I did. And uh, I was fortunate enough that it was picked up by uh, the nation. And the result, I'm not satisfied. I think there's a lot more work to be done to really refocus from these culture stories onto the systemic problems that are making life difficult for those who need the most help. But I was very happy to note that in the next speech, in his address to the joint session of Congress, he not only called out Switzerland as well as the other two countries, he called out Switzerland first. And I'm pretty sure that would not have happened had the letter in the nation not been published. In a way, it's too bad because I've been trying to argue this for 15 years and it didn't work the first time. But I think I made the point a little more forcefully and pointedly in the nation. And I was very happy that did actually strike a nerve. And so when he addressed this issue in the joint session speech, he didn't get it right from my point of view, but he was at least consistent with what his own experts were saying so that when others who were listening to him heard the problem of what international tax was facing, didn't just think, oh, if not for these small island states, our perfect global tax system will work fine, that they really were made to think about what the problem really looked like and not rely on these dated and often racially inflected culture stories. So it was it was an interesting experience and in some ways a gratifying one. It is really exciting to see scholarship have an impact on policy and policymakers, especially at such a high-profile occasion as a presidential address to Congress uh, and to the nation. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper? For me, the key takeaway is that we need more understanding. We need fewer stories that are really helpful primarily to fill in gaps in our understanding. We need to really have a better sense of what the global tax system could be doing. And the only way that we're going to get there is by hearing perspectives that aren't what you've been hearing all along. So I think we need more articles like the one that I wrote with Atia Waris that offer what I think to many is going to be a quite perhaps alarming take on what tax havens are and aren't. And I know that my perspective and the one we share in the paper is not the only one. I know that Professor Warris has strong views that are grounded in her experience about the voices of women and women of color, particularly in this space, and how hard it is to be heard. And I know, based on my experience, that when important groups aren't being heard, we're going to come up with the wrong answers. And coming up with the wrong answers sometimes ends up with people writing angry letters late at night and people making mistakes in very public ways. 
as the OEC did in 2000 and the President Biden did just a few weeks ago. But if we had more voices that were engaged in the discussion and the dialogue about these important problems, I think we wouldn't have over half the nations in Africa not meeting the basic UN Sustainable Development Goals. That is an issue. I think that the kinds of problems that you hear about in the newspapers, the kinds of problems that are identified by the Panama Papers are interesting, but they are not the ones that are the most urgent in this context. And I think for us to focus appropriately on what are truly the most urgent, the most pressing, the most longstanding problems, we need to replace culture stories with actual facts and information. And the only way we're going to get there is to listen to more and different kinds of people. Our guest today is Stephen Dean, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We've discussed his paper, 10 Truths About Tax Havens, Inclusion and the Liberia Problem, which was written with co-author Atia Waris of the University of Nairobi, and it's forthcoming in the Emory Law Journal. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Stephen, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's been a a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.